We're going to be going out of this world with today's episode. We're going to be talking about the 1997 movie Men in Black. It's a great futuristic movie.、Uh, I remember watching growing up in the late 90s and I loved it. I can't wait to show you some of the ins and outs, including what an actual astronomer had to say about the movie. Don't look into the neuralizer, though. We want you to remember this episode. This is a top 200 worldwide grossing film that was barely beating out the Croods by a couple of million. I, love, <laughs> I thought that was funny. I was like, I wonder where this place is. And it's like Croods right next to it. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I love this movie. It's really one to remember watching it for the first time. And when I found out there was going to be more movies in this series, I couldn't wait to watch them at the movies. I remember the summer of 2012 going to the drive thru and watching the third one that came out and being ecstatic since I'd been such a long time since they made one. So, in a very quick synopsis of this film, we have basically a secret government agency that is a police force over the universe that controls the laws of all alien life forms on Earth and around the entire universe. The main location for this headquarters is in New York City. We have an open position for an officer, and Tommy Lee Jones, who is also known as Agent K, sees James Edwards, played by Will Smith, a part of the NYPD, chase down an alien very successfully in what would not have been a normal or what would not be normal for a normal human being to be able to do. He entices Will Smith's character, James, or、uh, who we will call Agent J. In the future, to be part of the organization to where they maintain the peace of the universe. The antagonist of this film is a cockroach like alien character that lands on Earth looking for an energy source that is supposed to be used, I guess, to take over the universe in some way or form. And Agent K and J make it their job to prevent this from happening. So, I'm going to talk uh, about the, uh, how we kind of do the beginning, a little part of how we do some of these episodes. So, normally, Rochelle and I, we will pick up like each other's slack. So, meaning I'll do an episode、uh, and for one week, and then she'll do the next episode. I'll do an next episode, she'll do an episode. And so, it kind of gives it to where we each have to do one every two weeks. So, we write out kind of like a script to go by、uh, just so we can see what our plans are. And this one's mine. So,. Uh, some of the things that I bring up, I bring up because I want her to talk about them. And so that's why I talked about it right now. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Once again, the American Humane Society has had a say in the treatment of animals in the movies. Again, we talked about this in our Shawshank episode. The American Humane Society plays a role in the care of animals in the movies. Don't tell me. It's about the stinking cockroaches. Yeah. So I bring it up because I know it was something that you liked to talk about.、So、it hurt me. That's why I was like, <laughs> why I was like hey, let's talk about it again. Thanks. So, yeah, I put it in here for you to read. Thank you. So, there was a scene you may remember when the side of a garbage bin is kicked and the rusted outside crumbles, revealing cockroaches. On the inside of the garbage were two animal trainers who released 30 cockroaches from tubes. The cockroaches were protected by a plexiglass wall. 
and that they added 30 fake ones to make the mass amount of cockroaches. The ones that appeared to be squished were actually mustard packets, and after scenes were finished, they made sure to count all 30 cockroaches to maintain they had them all. Again, all this information was found on humanehollywood.org. Who cares about cockroaches? I do. Seriously? <laughs> no. What good do they bring to this world? Uh, well, Just like flies. No, they bring a lot of good. They decompose and stuff like of that. I'm sure. What? I'm sure. Like material. Then, uh, so you know the sunglasses from the movie they put on before flashing people's memories? These were actually the Ray-Ban Predator 2s. Pretty dope sunglasses, if you ask me. But whenever this movie came out, basically it tripled in sales of these specific glasses. I saw in a few places uh, that Ray-Ban had reported a sell increase of those sunglasses from 1.6 million to 5 million annually. So I was thinking, whenever I was writing this out, do you have a favorite pair of sunglasses you ever owned? I, uh, in high school, it was a pair of aviators, probably because of Top Gun. I didn't watch Top Gun at that time, but the aviators were probably made popular because of that. And then now a pair that I got from the website Sheen. Well, my favorite I ever had was I was actually in vacation on Florida and I had my regular glasses on in on the beach and in the water uh, to which I remember my mom saying, hey, you shouldn't wear your sun, your glasses out there in the water. You're going to lose them. To which I then smart aleckly reply back, I've never lost my glasses. I don't plan on ever losing them. And guess. within minutes, they were gone. So, <laughs> so I had to go to Lens Crafters in the mall down there. And they had a buy one, get one free sale. And so I got a pair of glasses and my first ever prescription sunglasses. So those were my favorite. And since we were in Florida, we did Disney. And let me tell you, when we were at Disney, I was going between like my normal glasses and my prescription sunglasses because when you go inside some of these areas, I think it's Disney or Universal, I can't remember. Uh, but when you go inside of the buildings to like do some of the rides inside, you can't see. It's like super dark if you're wearing sunglasses. That's why you wear contacts. I can't wear contacts. Um. So I had to take off my regular glasses, my new ones I just got, and put them in a case and put my new sunglasses on. And I literally lost those sunglasses the very first full day I had them. I, I lost them. And let me say that there were some unhappy campers, including myself. And luckily, uh, I went to the lost and found uh, about an hour later and someone had turned them in. Aww. I was like, oh my gosh, that was so lucky. Oh my goodness. So dope, huh? Pretty dope, bro. Wow. <laughs> wow. One, yeah, one of my favorite characters of this film was the character named Ed or Edgar or Edgar. <laughs> if you ever hear his wife say, say it in this movie, uh, she's like, Edgar. Uh, but anyways, um, that's what she says, whatever. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating character and the, what he brought to the film, specifically the most memorable scene with Edgar is the opening scene when he turns into a cockroach human skinned alien character. Yeah. I read an article written by Rachel Handel on vulture.com and she interviewed both Vincent Donofrio and Barry Sonnefeld. They were asked a bunch of questions about this opening scene where you see Vincent turning into a bug-like creature. And one of my favorite parts of this process is that uh, what Vincent made himself go through to look like and walk like a bug. Vincent said to start prep for the film, he watched bug documentaries to research their movements. And he said it was the most boring thing he ever had to watch in his entire life. 
<laughs> so he came up with the idea on his own. He went out and bought some basketball braces, put them on his knees and some ankle braces, put them on his, on his ankles, and he taped them up to where he couldn't move them up or down or left and right. So basically they were super stiff, and he had to learn to be able to walk and react with that jerky motion that it gave him whenever he was trying to walk a normal gait. Commitment. I know, right? Another part about the scene is, is how Vincent has a unique mannerism in the way he talks as Edgar. One of the things Sonnefeld talked about, which is really interesting, and I never really thought about it, and it's kind of cool because I obviously I'm not an actor, so I don't think about these things, but um, Sonnefeld said, if you talk too fast, you don't leave enough room for the acting. So he'd always want his actors to like talk kind of slow, have a little bit less emotions, and you could really see that acting brought through. And that's what Vincent did with the scene because kind of the way he talks to his wife was like, water, sugar, water. Like just like super bland and and uh, no real affect to it. And then bringing that up, it brings up that sugar water scene. And you remember the scene where he like, he's like asked for the sugar water? More. Yeah, more. And he like hammers down this water. And Sonnefeld, who I keep saying his name, but I forgot to mention he's the director of the film. Sonnefeld said there's nothing you could do uh, with that scene and he couldn't cut away. So basically, whenever you see him downing that glass of sugar water, he's literally downing a glass of sugar water. And it took, I don't know how many takes they said, but he probably drank about 11 to 12 glasses in that one shot. And so they asked Vincent, the person doing this, the Rachel Handel asked Vincent um, what he felt like afterwards. And his response was, like I had to pee. <laughs> they, also drank me 15 Dr. Peppers. Also drank me 15 Dr. Peppers. <laughs> I got to pee. <laughs> we thank do you, a lot. Thank we you. Do. Thank you, son. How's it feel to be an all-American? <laughs> I got to pee. We do a lot of Forrest Gump quotes. They're so good. Can't go wrong with it. In multiple commentaries, I saw that this film was supposed to be shot in locations such as Washington, D.C. I also saw Kansas and Nevada. But thankfully, Barry Sonnefeld made New York City the film's main location where you would see the people on Earth going about their everyday activities and that it would be the most normal scenario because you wouldn't think a second thought if you had seen someone acting strangely, talking strangely, dressing strangely in New York City as compared to maybe in Kansas or Washington, D.C. Yeah, this would be a lot more normal in like New York City or uh, uh, as, as compared to Topeka, Kansas or somewhere like that. Phil Plate, who's an astronomer, runs a website with the URL as badastronomy.com. He refers to himself as the bad astronomer. I actually saw he does a, um, I teach a anatomy class and there is a, oh, what is that called? It's a, oh my gosh, never mind. I can't think of what it's called, but it's one of these YouTube videos that, that are really interesting. He does one about astronomy uh, and like he's got, I don't know, like millions of followers, which is kind of cool. But on his website, basically he goes into depth on movies that talk about uh, galaxies and the universe and books that do the same thing. And an interesting point that he did was he did a review on Men in Black and he actually posted a very positive review. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on everything that he says, but one part that he was talking about was um, some of the parts like when Agent K was walking through the compound, he sees a slug-like creature and he pulls Jay away saying, you want to stay away from that guy. He's grouchy because of a three-hour delay and in customs and a trip for 17 trillion miles is going to make anybody cranky. Phil said it's really close because the nearest star to the sun is Proxima Century, which is roughly 25 trillion miles away. So 17 falls a bit short, but it was a, cl- it was a close one. 
Another one that he said was like, whenever Will Smith touches that floating orb in the office and it shoots around the room, it's quoted in the movie saying that the thing caused the 1997 New York blackout. It's a practical joke by the great attractor. Phil again thought that was funny because the great attractor is actually an inside joke because it's a term for a large mass of galaxies located very far away. And the mass is a cluster of galaxies that's so huge that its gravity is drawing matter towards it uh, for hundreds of millions of light years. Hence, it's called the great attractor. And or the black hole? No. Well, there's many black holes. Oh. This is this is one kind of like a black hole, but like a, a huge one. That, the black hole. No, there's no deep black hole, but I guess if you're going to call something the black hole. And you saw this on the line? I saw this on the line. Uh, <laughs> and the last thing I'm going to mention is Phil's conclusion in uh, his uh, review of this movie. I quoted this from uh, his conclusion. He said, this movie's an absolute riot. I really like the astronomy. It was actually pretty good with only relatively minor errors when they could have just as easily made really huge ones. And when they went into the specifics about astronomy, they typically got it right. There you have it. The rare review where I like a movie and they made good astronomy. Ironically, it's in a movie about UFOs. Wow. If only more UFO movies got anything right. End quote. So I saw in a blog post on monsterlegacy.net by a person named the Monster Philologist. Yeah, it's philologist. It's philologist, sorry. I couldn't, uh, no, it's philologist. Philologist. Yes. I couldn't uh, find a uh, actual name for this person. He just posts it in his blog and his name is by the Monster Philologist. Monster Phil. Okay. It was an no the monster philologist monster Phil. <laughs> no, the monster <laughs> philologist. Okay, it was an interviewer that talked to Rick Baker, the alien makeup effect and special makeup effect artist, about making the men in black scenes and creating the costume designs and the actual monsters themselves for this movie. And he brought up a really good point that I thought was kind of amazing. I never really thought about it before, and that point is that Baker was quoted saying it would be really hard to do an alien that does not look like something you've seen 40,000 times on TV. That was one of the challenges to do something that looks like something that has not been done before. Yeah. uh, You think about aliens, your first thing that comes to your mind is alien. Well, mine's not. Mine's little green guy, big head, big black eyes. Um, but you know, that's one of the things that gets played over and over is what these aliens look like. And it's interesting too, the fact that so many people do humanoid aliens, which he didn't do. He did a lot of bug like aliens, mm-hmm. which would make a lot more sense, I guess. Cause it um, could blend into the, to the, well, just saying why, why would everything look like what we are? You know, why would they walk on hind legs, two arms, two legs, a head, you know? That's what a lot of people's arguments would be is that they're humanoid. They're too human-like whenever we aren't necessarily the center of everything is what a person would believe if they believed in aliens. Well, no, was it in this one? I think it was this one where it's that teeny tiny little dude was inside yeah. the metal. Yeah. Teeny tiny little guy. Well, big guy. And so um, he didn't look bug-like but i mean they kind of hide themselves inside of people's bodies i don't know but it that is interesting because you when you think of any movie it would be hard to make a monster different than another monster a alien you know any of that stuff 
that would be very challenging for any person to do. Big respect to any makeup artists, costume artists that do that. I saw in a couple of places, including Ranker.com, that the director John Landis turned down the opportunity to direct this film. John Landis has been known to direct things like Trading Places, Three Amigos, Coming to America, and The Blues Brothers, both the original and 2000. I saw on IMDb that he actually turned it down because it was like Blues Brothers, but in space with aliens. I can't find that exact quote anywhere else, but looking at some of the things he did and directed, it could be plausible that he turned it down for this reason. I mean, it, it just, it makes sense. Yeah, I that exact quote, like I said, couldn't find it. Uh, I searched it super duper hard, uh, but I did find in many places that he was offered the job, mm-hmm. but I couldn't see him saying, no, that's just a remake of that movie. Right. I mean, it makes sense, though. It makes complete sense. Well, they both wear black suits all the time. I never and, saw Blues Brothers. And they're on a mission. And so... Uh, Have you seen Blues Brothers? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Is but it funny? Th- yeah. Yeah, mm. it is. Uh, but they're and on a mission. And and John Belushi? Sure. Joe Belushi? No, we're going to go... What did you say the last time? Jack? Jack Jack Belushi or something. One of the J's. Just like there's many Alec like Baldwin brothers. Alec. <laughs> well, you said you said a Belushi Barry. brother that wasn't even a Belushi brother. I was like, oh, sure, we're going with that one. So. I, I don't know, but a Belushi. Okay. I also a Belushi well. <laughs> I also saw in a couple places some characters that they wanted to be in the original script, and some of them are just downright comical. The first one was one of the early front runners for the Will Smith character, and that was David Schwimmer. Yes, that's correct. Ross. Ross was a possibility for playing Will Smith's character. Hey. Oh, no, not hey. Hi. All right. Um, Will Smith Guess wasn't... Guess you don't get Friends reference there. No, Will Smith was not like inclined to um, make this movie, actually, because it is just after his uh making of independence day and he's like oh, i don't want i don't want to do another alien I, movie that makes sense I, and, I i didn't think of that i would yeah. have for some reason i would have what would i have thought before this what, <laughs> wild, what, wild, what, west. wild wild west yes that was the one i was thinking of <laughs> i don't know the exact order but i saw him say that and i saw that it was also rumored that um jada pinkett smith his wife talked him into it which Pretty sure he's pretty happy because it made millions of dollars. And he continued with it too. Yeah. The other that I thought to be very funny was for the role of Agent K, which ended up going to Tommy Lee Jones. It was originally cast and was wanted by the executive producers to be Clint Eastwood. You feeling lucky? Yeah. yeah. Punk? Do you? No, um, there. I, mean, I love thinking about how these movies would end up. And oh, I know. I think it'd be really interesting. Now, hear this: if David Schwimmer and Clint Eastwood. Oh, that just sounds. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm sure to people back then were thinking, uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, but David Schwimmer, he's just. I don't know the word. He's. I can only see him as Ross. He's not really good in anything else. I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. But he's, I can only picture him as Ross. Well, all right. The last thing I'm going to talk about here uh, is 
there was a small, tiny part in this film many of you guys may not remember, uh, and that's okay that you don't. It's just one of the things that frustrated me is I, I don't like being out of the know on things, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of inside joke that was played during the movie, and it was really frustrating because us as the audience have no idea what the joke is. So anyways, it's early on when Kay first met Will Smith's character right after he got done chasing down that alien. Mm -hmm. And basically, you come into the scene, they're like at this lounge bar type area, and you come into the scene and you see Agent Kay like dying laughing. And you don't know what he's dying laughing about, but we just know that what Kay's laughing about, he thinks is really funny, and it's the punchline of some joke. And the punchline goes, but honey... This one's eating my popcorn. And he's just like profusely laughing, like hardcore. I was super curious about this joke because I hate not being in the know. And there are a lot of versions of this joke that I found, but they kind of all roll around the same uh, pattern. I will preface this. It's not a very clean joke, but I'm going to try to make it as PG as possible. I ran it through with Rochelle last night. She deemed it okay. So I'm going to go ahead and roll with it with this PG version. Basically, the way the joke goes is that a farmer is with his rooster and decides to go to town to watch a movie at the theaters. And when he gets to the theater, the person at the front box says, hey, you can't bring animals in the theater. So he hides the rooster inside his overalls. He proceeds to go into the theater. And during the movie, he takes the rooster out of the side of his overalls so the rooster can watch the movie as well. Okay. This, <laughs> this couple that's sitting right next to him, uh, the wife pokes her husband and says, Honey, this guy is disgusting. He's got his you-know-what out. And you-know-what is the other term for rooster. And the husband says, Oh, quiet down. It's not anything you've never seen before. But which the wife then replies, Yeah, but honey, this one's eating my popcorn. (laughs) I thought that was cute. This has been Rewind. Let's watch that again. Please look for us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under the same name and follow us for future episodes and updates. Each new episode will drop every Wednesday where we will go into depth on another film we consider to be a classic from the 90s and 2000s. Also, feel free to send us an email about what you thought or if you have any comments on the show. You can contact us via those social media outlets or email us at rewind. Let's watch that again at yahoo.com.